0: Open Source is sponsored by listeners like you. Pitch in to keep the world's first podcast going strong. Fifteen years and counting. Find us at patreon.com slash radio And thank you. I'm Christopher Leiden. This is Open Source. Rebecca Solnit's striking fresh take on the late, great George Orwell comes in a book-length essay titled Orwell's Roses, The line that recurs chapter after chapter is this. In the spring of 1936, a writer planted roses. He also kept a goat and cared about his trees. Little facts about Orwell, but maybe keys to his work. We know everything else about the prolific Orwell, the socialist who abominated the Soviet Union in his masterpiece, 1984. Orwell the Tory anarchist, he joked about himself from the lower upper middle class, perhaps the most important all-round treasure of an English writer in the 20th century, the wintry conscience of his time, and still an endless pleasure to read and admire anew. Rebecca Solnit, you found Orwell's sort of rosebud in the roses he grew in a small rural hideaway with his wife in his mid-30s between his public adventures. How did you land on the roses, And what did they tell you?
1: I had known for decades that in his wonderful essay, A Good Word for the Vicar of Bray, George Orwell talked about planting and tending roses. But until I was actually face to face with those roses on November of 2017, I'd never really thought hard enough about what it meant that our great anti-fascist, our great prophet of totalitarianism, had also been an avid gardener and tender of roses. It felt like it raised questions about what pleasure and beauty and non-utilitarian activities might have in the life of somebody very dedicated to a utilitarian purpose, a question of what the plant kingdom and the natural world has to do with political life, of who George Orwell was in his time, who he can be for our time and what we might learn for thinking about our own lives as we enter this very intense era of climate chaos about how to live, as we look at how he lived through the chaos of wars and the rise of fascism, totalitarianism, and the rest.
0: You say face-to-face with those roses. That's at his little farm in the mid-30s, and one of his friends in your book says it might have been the only happy year of his life, newly married and out with the rose bushes.
1: He'd just come back from looking at the blighted industrial districts and mining districts around Manchester for what would become the book The Road to Wigan Pier, and was about to get married and lead the life he really wanted, which was having a garden, living in the country, being married, making a living as a writer, and... So he managed to launch all that in 1936, but then left it all to go fight in the Spanish Civil War in December of that year.
0: Speak of the several Orwells for people who don't know him as well as you do. I think of him in stages, the miserable schoolboy wetting his bed at age eight and paying for it. He was indoctrinated in that period of his life in the thought that bedwetting was a sin, but one he could not control— The moral was sin, folly, weakness were going to be his fate.
1: Yeah, he was really just bullied and forced and pressured and shamed because he was a scholarship boy Mm -hmm. on reduced tuition. He won a scholarship to Eaton, you know, for aristocrats, future prime ministers, etc. He was always conscious that he was poor among richer boys, something of a misfit and something of a rebel. He was packed off to become a military policeman in Burma for five years, an experience from which he learned a lot and which he seems to have
0: mostly loathed and which ultimately made him into an anti-imperialist. There's that marvelous piece, Shooting an Elephant. Here's what he's learning about empire. He says, with one part of my mind, I thought of the British Raj as an unbreakable tyranny, as something clamped down forever and ever upon the will of prostrate peoples. With another part, I thought that the greatest joy in the world would be to drive a bayonet into a Buddhist priest's guts. Feelings like those, he says, are the normal byproducts of imperialism. Ask any Anglo-Indian official if you can catch him off duty.
1: Yeah, he seemed to be describing his obedience to the mandates for, you know, the white people enforcing colonialism and the rebellion against it, the desire to escape it, which he ultimately did. He had wanted to be a writer since he was a boy, did this obeying his parents at some level, and then rebelled and struck out to be a writer and was tremendously poor for most of the next dozen years or more. And then finally, with Animal Farm, started making a very nice living at it towards the end of his life.
0: Meantime, there's World War II, which is critical. I love maybe more than any Orwell that long essay called The Lion and the Unicorn in which he's trying to dope out what sort of a nation are we at the start of a war that we're not going to escape. And that piece begins, as I write, highly civilized human beings are flying overhead trying to kill me. He's trying to see a pattern of Englishness out of various fragments, like the clatter of clogs in the Lancashire mill towns, the rattle of pin tables in the Soho pubs, the old maids biking to Holy Communion through the mists of the autumn mornings.
1: Yeah, one of the things that I love about Orwell is that he managed to deeply love Englishness and his own country while hating the British Empire, the aristocracy, imperialism, etc.,
0: and he was able to separate those. At that point, he felt very free about loving parts of England and hating others. He said the gentleness of the English civilization is perhaps its most marked characteristic. But then he gets tough with the ruling class, gone rotten, he thought, in the 1930s. A family, he writes, with the wrong members in control. That perhaps is as near as one can come to describing England in a phrase. He didn't think those public school boys were up to winning the war, but he thought the great redemption coming out of the war would be England going socialist, which in a manner it did. Where have we heard this voice before? I hear a certain Henry David Thoreau in it. Yeah,
1: that was a comparison I made. And the funny thing about the two of them is a lot of the accounts of who Orwell is leaves out all the natural history, the love of nature, the pleasure, the writings about, you know the beauty of a toad coming out of hibernation, the pleasure of gardens, et cetera. A lot of the stuff about Thoreau tries to turn him into a sweet, almost simpering nature boy, despite the fact that he's the author of Civil Disobedience. So they're both kind of divided up or will get pushed all to one side, Thoreau to the other, and you don't see the complete writer, the complete person. And I think what's marvelous about both of them is they're representing you can do both. Thoreau cared passionately about ending slavery and was an avid abolitionist actively right. in his writing. And he loved huckleberrying and um, writing about autumn leaves and observing the natural world. And Orwell is much more similar than I think people have given him credit for.
0: Who else? I mean, didn't you suggest Heather Cox Richardson, who writes a daily commentary on everything in Washington from a coastal spot in Maine where she lives with a lobster man, and it's become a daily oracle.
1: Yeah. One of the things that I find fascinating is how the time calls forth the person. Heather Cox Richardson was a wonderful historian who began writing a daily essay in response to the Ukraine scandal in 2019 and become hugely popular and influential. And a lot of what she does is give us historical context, but also she has called things by their true names, has made it clear how utterly corrupt and criminal the Trump administration was, what kinds of crises against democracy we faced, and brought that into context. And I think that there's been many people you could call the Orwell of their moment, and Orwell did a fantastic job in his moment of talking about not only what the Third Reich represented, which pretty much everyone outside the Third Reich was willing to condemn, but also what Stalinism meant and how many people on the left had turned from whatever idealism made them communists into Stalinists, which is a very different thing.
0: When he got to Spain, he discovered that he was the real communist and Stalin was just the the real authoritarian and he broke entirely with the formal structure. But I like that idea of Orwell's in their own moment. James Baldwin in the Civil Rights Time. Oh, that's
1: a beautiful person to claim in the Orwellian tradition.
0: I think of I.F. Stone. He was my Orwell in the Vietnam War time, and he looks better and better.
1: And I think they're all around us. You can look at Rachel Carson um, writing about pesticides in a groundbreaking way. You can look at Betty Friedan's The Feminine Mystique. You can look at So many people kind of breaking open, you know, what was closed up and unseen in society. So many people standing up for justice. Orwell, I think, stands out as exceptional because of the depth of his vision, his courage, and his sheer power and grace as a writer. But I think we always have a lot of people trying to do that work. And you can think of Brian Stevenson against the death penalty. You can think of Black Lives Matter. You can think of... So many human rights people, so many people denouncing corruption in government, all the whistleblowers. Edward Snowden exposing what the NSA was doing to our privacy a dozen years ago.
0: It's about Big Brother, too. I mean, it's about surveillance in our time. It's almost a sequel to 1984.
1: And of course, Big Brother is watching you, and I speak from San Francisco, which has been devoured whole by Silicon Valley.
0: Yeah, our Orwell today would point out that our Big Brother in the 2020s has corporate labels all over him. Apple, Google, Starbucks, Verizon, Exxon, Goldman Sachs. Not to mention the NSA.
1: Yeah, but a lot of the surveillance is coming specifically from the tech companies who have what I always like to say capacities that Stasi, the FBI, and the KGB could never dream of. You know, you install NEST stuff in your house or an Alexa device from Amazon, and it can turn into a two-way monitor just like they have in the homes in 1984, except that it's much more sophisticated. And one of the funny things in the dystopias, like 1984, they have to force this technology on us. These days, a lot of people eagerly spend a lot of money to bring it into their lives and don't recognize or don't care that they've set themselves up for surveillance.
0: Coming up, George Orwell in the coal mines of his country... Here are Orwell's words in an actor's voice from a BBC documentary on his plunge into the working squalor of industrial England. All of us really owe the comparative decency of our lives to poor drudges underground, blackened to the eyes with their throats full of coal dust, driving their shovels forward with arms and belly muscles of steel. This is what industrialism has done for us. Columbus sailed the Atlantic, first steam engines tottered into motion. The British squares stood firm under the French guns at Waterloo. The one-eyed scoundrels of the 19th century praised God and filled their pockets. And this is where it has all led. This is Open Source. The roses George Orwell grew become the image of the writer's soul, the fixed point for many departures in his life and in Rebecca Solnit's account of him. Coal is another big digression in her story. She's giving us a lesson, by the way, in how she and Orwell and other great ones write essays, pivoting off one passion into another.
1: Just before Orwell planted those roses, which I had read about, and with the fruit trees he planted at the same time as he started the garden in Wallington, that all happened right after he'd come back from the industrial and coal mining north and been really kind of shocked and horrified and awakened by what he saw. And so it felt like that made the garden almost the antithesis. You see something dead and ugly and destructive and alienated. You go try and make something that's the opposite of that, which a, a garden, both a vegetable garden and a flower garden that he started, what was or could be. And, um, you know, but the coal mining was also interesting to me. Of course, George Orwell did not think about climate change, but coal is a fossilized remnant of the, the peat bogs of the Carboniferous era 300 million years ago on an utterly different planet that was still our Earth long before mammals and humans in which plants, rather than their carbon going back into the atmosphere, the carbon that they pulled out of the atmosphere went into the swamps, became peat, and then, you know, over the uh, drying out time pressure, etc., became coal. And of course, England ran on coal in Orwell's era. The Industrial Revolution in England depended on coal, the locomotives, the factories, the manufacturing. So coal ran everything. And cities, London, Glasgow, uh, Manchester, were black with coal burning. That was the world Orwell grew up in. But he says himself that it was in his book, the road to Wigan Pier. It is only very rarely when I make a definite mental effort that I connect this coal with that far-off labor in the mines. And he writes that um, with the coal being unloaded into his coal chute in the cottage in Wallington just after seeing the mines and really being shocked by them. uh, Tunnels so low you had to go through on all fours or stooped over, men working almost naked because it was so hot, the terrible, dangerous conditions... The miners living, you know, blackened because they only got one bath a week to get it all off. The deadness of the districts in which almost nothing grew and everything was befouled with the coal. And despite the wealth that the uh, coal drove for the manufacturing class, the desperate poverty of the people around there. And so I felt that in planting a garden, he was really trying to make an opposite of that, but also. Mm. What coal signifies for us now is really a war against the plant kingdom. And we've talked about other wars in Orwell's life, but it feels like he almost recognizes the violence, the destructiveness of the mining. What we fully understand now is that plants made the modern world by sequestering a huge amount of carbon from the sky, creating the modern climate. We've reversed that by pulling up lots of oil and gas and coal and burning it, putting its carbon back in the sky as carbon dioxide, creating global warming and climate chaos. So we can now look at mining with a different kind of horror and dread than he had. Uh, But it did feel like he understood it as kind of a war against nature, a kind of ugliness and destructiveness and alienation and coming straight back from that to plant his first real garden beyond the allotment gardens he'd planted a few places is really trying to be the antithesis of that in some way. Fascinating.
0: Even in 1984, after reading your book, Rebecca, one sees incidental passages where Orwell is talking about nature, about the calm pleasures of a cozy fireplace, of a time of life entirely out-of-the-machine age, and it comes up in so many interesting varieties. What are your favorites when he's speaking his kind of ideal of the rural life?
1: Beyond 1984 Animal Farm and another of his early novels, I began reading Orwell in earnest when I bought an ugly, cheap, used anthology of his work that included a wonderful essay called A Good Word for the Vicar of Bray. And it's Orwell at his most casual and cheerful. He talks about the Vicar of Bray, who was the subject of a, a comic song because he kept switching sides in the religious wars. He was, he survived by being fickle. But he also planted a yew tree, which Orwell had gone to see. And it was a quite beautiful ancient enormous tree and then Orwell is off and running and is talking about you can be quite a bad person but plant trees that may outlive anything else you do and then goes and talks about going to go see the garden he had planted in Wallington in 1936 and this is an essay he wrote in the spring of nineteen forty six and aside I'll throw in because I was so shocking when I fully understood it. Is the reason he went back to Wallington in nineteen forty six is that he was giving up the lease after ten years on that cottage and he had was actually terrified to go back and revisit the scenes of his of his marriage his wife had died the year before he was quite devastated by her death, and yet he went back and wrote these a couple quite cheerful nature essays of sorts or essays about the natural world anyway one is the good word for the vicar of bray that's about planting things and coming and seeing that his own roses and fruit trees are flourishing 10 years later and you know there's so much of his work that i like and you look at him again and as i did after encountering his roses and you find that there's passionate descriptions even in his grimmest books of the natural world, in the trenches in the Spanish Civil War, he's looking at what trees are in bloom and seeing peasants wear, he says, saucer sized wild roses tucked behind their ear. And in 1984 itself, Winston is constantly looking for beautiful things. He dreams about this place he calls the Golden Country. And it's a very ordinary English landscape, not exceptional, extreme. It's not alpine or tropical or amazingly lush. It's just ordinary with molehills and trees and etc. And part of what makes 1984 anything but a realist novel or even a realistic sci-fi novel is that at least twice the things Winston dreams about then happen. Uh, when he gets involved with Julia and begins his passionate love affair with her. She takes him to a landscape. They do this very sneaky um, two separate journeys so they won't be detected and arrive together uh, in the countryside and she takes him to this place and he steps into a meadow and it matches his dreams perfectly and then he Mm. listens to a bird singing and loves the fact that the bird is singing for no utilitarian purpose Inutility is itself a kind of resistance to this utilitarianism of an authoritarian state. And on this reading, after I'd met his rose bushes in person, I realized that even 1984 is full of pleasure and beauty and nature. These things Winston seeks out and treasures and they're imperiled, they're fugitive, but they're there and he finds them and... The climax of the book really is this cockney woman singing in a cockney accent, this big, broad matriarch hanging out diapers for the next generation and uh, you know, and in this extraordinary passage, Winston thinks first that he's she's beautiful, this stout, co- coarsened, reddened washerwoman. You know, and it feels like a breakthrough for Orwell too to see a fifty year old stout working-class woman as beautiful. But then he thinks to himself, "Why should the rose hip be thought less beautiful than the rose and It was a stunning moment for me first of all, I think this is this is a pivotal moment in figure in nineteen eighty four but it's also such an interesting thing where Orwell is using the metaphor of the rose to make a point, and it's a reminder that all that time in the natural world gives him and gives any of us metaphors, allegories, frameworks to understand the world around us. I often feel like we're really bereft without that metaphorical richness we get from the physical, um, spatial, and natural worlds. And you see him putting it to work in this metaphor in Winston's thought as he looks at this woman who's Stands are like an earth goddess, you know, hanging out the Mm. the diapers that represent some kind of care for the future, singing this song that's about a lost love and nostalgia for the past, but about love and emotion, things you're not really supposed to have in that world. And just the sheer power and steadfastness. Winston thinks over and over, if there's hope it lies in the proles, in the proletarians. People often think that because Winston himself is defeated and destroyed – Orwell had no hope in this book. But in fact, he actually, I think, and Winston placed their hope in the washerwoman and people like her, not in this scrawny bureaucrat in the Ministry of Truth, which is what Winston is. And so I found that moment quite stunning and also stunning that it was there and I had never fully noticed it
0: i got to thank you for the Vicar of Bray essay and that beautiful ending. He says, even an apple tree is liable to live for about 100 years so that the cocks I planted in 1936 may still be bearing fruit well into the 21st century. Uh, And he goes on to say it won't save the planet or his soul necessarily, but still, it might not be a bad idea every time you commit an antisocial act to make a note of it in your diary and then at the appropriate season... Push an acorn into the ground. Roses are, in effect, the rosebud of your search for George Orwell. Uh, but then you do a sort of Orwell move in going to Columbia, where our roses come from nowadays. And it's sort of like Orwell going to Wigan to see how, where coal comes from. And you, you make some awful discoveries.
1: Yeah, I had heard about the rose industry, so I knew that the roses you buy in supermarkets and most florists and things like that come from Colombia and that are grown under horrendous conditions. And I wanted to see it for myself to understand more deeply for a number of reasons. One, of course, is it does make a great parallel to Orwell going to the coal mines. Another reason is that I wanted to see roses... You know, ask, is a rose still a rose when it's an alienated commodity produced under brutal labor conditions and then shipped across the Gulf um from Columbia to Miami. When is a rose not a rose? And then also because Orwell loved roses, he loved beauty, and it let me think about, well, what are Orwell's aesthetics? And some of them were around mm. not separating the ethical from the aesthetic. And so it raises a question I think we can ask about our food, our clothes, our energy. Should should we be aware of the condition of its creation, both the labor and the environmental aspects? And is what it means its processes? Can we separate you know, the attractiveness of a dozen roses from the incredibly unattractive morally way they're produced? And then, of course, it led me to think hard about Orwell's aesthetics. And he's deeply interested in integrity, a kind of moral integrity in language. He's very interested in the beauty of language. And for him, a lot of that is language that has integrity, that tells the truth, that describes accurately, that doesn't try to, you know, bamboozle or trick or seduce you. And he's interested in, you know, acts of integrity of, you know, that there's a real kind of beauty in somebody acting with courage, with generosity, uh, with honor. And But he does also love the aesthetic beauty, you know, the visual beauty of the countryside of flowers, which he planted over and over again all his adult life on his wife's grave in his last home on the Isle of Jura in the Hebrides in Scotland. So yeah, so going to go look at the roses was both a great detour to Columbia for a book about an Englishman, but also directly into what a rose can mean and what Orwell's roses might have to teach
0: us. I'd ask you, just for example, what he looks like to you. And I'd start by just pointing out a couple of things. One from your book, a man named John Morris at the BBC, who knew him back in the day, described the look of Orwell this way— There was the gray asceticism in his face of a medieval saint. In his eyes, a combination of benevolence and fanaticism, as though he saw more, as indeed he did, than the ordinary mortal. But there's also his description in a long, famous essay about Charles Dickens. He saw in the face of Dickens, the face of a man who's always fighting against something, but who fights in the open and is not frightened, the face of a man who is generously angry. In other words, of a 19th century liberal, a free intelligence, a type hated with equal hatred by all the smelly little orthodoxies which are not contending for our souls. That's Orwell, I think, trying to see his own face in Dickens or vice versa. What do you see?
1: So, you know, physically Orwell is six foot three, which is extraordinarily tall for that era, still tall for ours. He knows, for example, that his size 12 feet are so big, he has to bring his own boots to Spain to be a soldier. But I think that even more striking than that is the fact that Orwell damaged his bronchial tubes with an illness when he was a very small child, and was in poor health his whole life. Any respiratory disease he picked up, and he picked them up regularly, was liable to leave him bedridden for weeks or months. And then someplace, maybe Spain, he contracted the tuberculosis that would kill him at 46. And so one of the things that I think really shapes him is that he spends a lot of time being incapacitated and ill and I think he's very aware of his mortality in a way a lot of people, particularly young people, aren't. And some people I think that makes them very frightened and depressed and careful. With Orwell there was a kind of carpe diem, a sense that since I don't have an endless amount of time and may not have very much, I might as well live fully. He And he had a very martial spirit. You know, going to Spain when you were not a particularly healthy guy um, and already subject to hemorrhages and lung illnesses. You know, going to Spain to fight in the trenches through the the winter and the spring um, is pretty damn tough. And, of course, that made him so sick that he went to Morocco to convalesce. He had had a collapse and spent months in a sanatorium after coming back from Spain.
0: I'm trying to sum up the things that I've learned from your book and, and I must say an immersion in George Orwell again. The first one, maybe least important, but is that he was self-consciously an artist from a very early age. In every book, at some point he says explicitly, he's striving for an aesthetic mark, even more than maybe than a political point.
1: Yeah, he writes about um, apprenticing himself to become a writer by just describing things around him in his head as though he were writing them down the way that, you know, you would if you're writing a memoir or a novel. And he also is very clear that he finds, uh, you know, no matter how committed he is to a political goal, the aesthetic never leaves. There's a passage in the essay, Why I Write, also part of his great motherload of essays in 1946 before he starts 1984, later that year. There's a passage in Why I Write, that was my credo for many years before I wrote this book. He says, When I sit down to write a book, I do not say to myself, I'm going to produce a work of art. I write it because there is some lie that I want to expose, some fact to which I want to draw attention, Hmm. and my initial concern is to get a hearing. But he goes on to say, But I could not do the work of writing a book or even a long magazine article if it were not also an aesthetic experience. Anyone who cares to examine my work will see that even when it is downright propaganda, it contains much that a full-time politician would consider irrelevant. So long as I remain alive and well, I shall continue to feel strongly about prose style, to love the surface of the earth, and to take Mm. a pleasure in solid objects and scraps of useless information. And God, I love that last sentence. It's such an eclectic personal list. Such a positive assertion of things worth loving and how much he loves them. And such a good description of him, prose style, the surface of the earth, solid objects and scraps of useless information.
0: (laughs) Coming up, a man of contradictions who worked them out. This is Open Source. What I'm learning from Rebecca Solnit is that George Orwell fed and grew on the tensions in his resume and himself. Born in India, he was a child of the British Empire more than of England. Five years as an imperial policeman in Burma made him a fierce anti-imperialist. He was a natural left-winger who came to draw a hard line against Soviet communism, changing his name from Eric Blair to the made-up George Orwell may have been a way of orphaning himself out of his ancestry.
1: It's hard to tell what he wanted to leave behind. When he was young, he was prejudiced against Scottish people, and his real name, Eric Blair. Blair is a Scottish name, so it could have been that. But he certainly grew into the name he created for himself, George Orwell, and he became an anti-imperialist. What I found fascinating about the family background and worth exploring is that it's very easy to think like, oh, the plant kingdom, growing things, it's all very sweet and pretty. But there's a lot of really ugly botanical colonialism in the family history. His mother's father had been a teak merchant in Burma, chopping down the Burmese forests for the profit of Europeans. And his great, great grandfather, Blair, was the third or fourth of a line who had plantations in Jamaica, run on slave labor, and his father was a sub opium agent in Motahari, India. And of course, the opium his father grew was to trade for all the Chinese goods the English wanted and kind of foist the opium upon them, starting a couple of opium wars, creating a lot of addiction and a lot of other havoc. So his father was a drug dealer.
0: Yeah. Hel- hel- help distill our sense of what he was driving at. Everybody knows 1984 and his war with authoritarianism, totalitarianism, as he'd like to call it. The other thread that you're exploring seems to be essential. He's building a kind of personification of his idea of the essential Englishman. In the essays, and especially in The Lion and the Unicorn, he's trying to fill out in his own persona this ideal of the middle-class man, the modest man, the gardener. In that essay from 1941, for example, he says, here it is worth noticing a minor English trait, which is extremely well-marked, though not often commented on, and that is a love of flowers. We are a nation of flower lovers, but also a nation of stamp collectors, pigeon fanciers, amateur carpenters, coupon snippers, darts players, crossword puzzle fans, and he goes on. It seems to me his work is sort of filling out his ideal of that sort of variety. Well, what I think he's
1: defending there is the freedom and privacy I was talking about earlier with Edward Snowden, exactly. And all the different things you might do with your free time, whether you're working class or middle class or whatever. He has a wonderful essay written in the nineteen forties because people were like, "Oh, reading is bourgeois because books are unaffordable to the working class." So in the essay, he compares how much it would cost for a heavy smoker such as himself to buy cigarettes every week versus how much it would cost to buy books. And I think the cheap Penguin books then existed and comes out on the side that actually books are fairly affordable. So he's interested in pleasures that are relatively accessible to working class as well as middle class people. We all know what Orwell was against, and what he's against is simple and straightforward lies, propaganda, authoritarianism, fascism, dictatorships the violations of human rights. But then what is he for? He's for pleasure and beauty and enjoyment and the privacy in which you're free to pursue it on your own terms. And he celebrates those things quite a bit more than I think he's given credit for in his novels and in his essays. And one of the things that became a real touchstone for me and I've found useful in my thinking since I wrote this book is the phrase, bread and roses we don't just need the bread which is you know food clothing shelter the basics of life but we need the roses and we have a right to the roses and the suffragists and labor organizers who made that phrase first circulate uh, 1911 and 1912 are really saying we need pleasure beauty leisure culture nature Uh, the time in which to pursue all those things, and the freedom in which to decide what they'll be. You may be into stamp collecting, and I'm into, you know, raising homing pigeons. You may be into swimming, and I may be into rock climbing. What constitutes the roses in Bread and Roses is going to vary from person to person. So that's one of the things that was exciting, is to understand that Orwell was actually very articulate about what he's for, and that 1984 is not really about what totalitarianism looks like in detail. Hannah Arendt has a lot more to say about that than he does. He's actually about what is it trying to destroy? And you see with Winston furtively pursuing his mm. tiny pleasures, his freedom of thought, his subversiveness, you know, his freedom of movement, having a love affair, keeping a journal, what they're trying to destroy. We all need to know what we're against. But if you don't also know what you're for, you can get deeply lost. You become the mirror image of what you oppose. You can lose your bearings. You can be easily corrupted. And Orwell never lost sight of what he was for, what he was defending when he attacked Stalinism, attacked lies and propaganda, whether it was the kind of effluent issuing from mainstream politicians or leftists covering up Stalin Uh, what the Third Reich was doing, you know, all the kind of sinister abuses of language to justify the unjustifiable. There's something that happened not that long ago when the artist Zoe Leonard told her fellow artist, David Wanarovic, that she felt abashed about making beautiful images of clouds during the AIDS crisis, like shouldn't she only be making propaganda for the cause? And David Wanarovic, who would soon die of AIDS, replied to her, with this wonderful thing, he said, Zoe, these are so beautiful, and that's what we're fighting for. We're being angry and complaining because we have to, but where we want to go back to is beauty. If you let go of that, we don't have anywhere to go. There's often a sense on the left, which can be very austere and puritanical, you shouldn't have things until everyone can have them. But David Ronarovich is saying, even in an ugly time, even when people are suffering... You have to keep these things so we have somewhere to go. You can keep them as a trust so that others can have them, whether you're saving heirloom seeds, protecting public spaces, protecting the climate itself. But that beauty is important to protect, and the roses and bread and roses matter.
0: Mm. That's marvelous. Rebecca Solner, you've written a soulful book that finally makes this wintry Orwell a sort of soul guy. But there's a connection back to his definition of socialism, too. He was not a doctrinaire left-wing guy. He didn't seem to read Marx or the doctrine at all. But socialism keeps coming back as his definition of a good life in a good country, a measure of fairness, unions, balance in life, but also in the powers of life. In the United States in the 2020s, we're still trying to discover that is a credible voice for our society.
1: Well, here's something really important about Orwell. He distrusted centralized authority, and he could see governments getting more power over their people. And, of course, 1984 is a portrait of almost absolute control. You know, he saw almost absolute control in the Third Reich and the Soviet Union. So he didn't like the socialism that meant that kind of uh, centralized power. He was always something of an anarchist. And I think what he liked was kind of village commons and small things. So he believed that there should be no desperation, hunger, starvation, absolute poverty. He was not a fan of the wealthy. And so I think he wanted to see a just distribution of resources and possibly something like an ideal social democracy, not necessarily what we've sometimes called socialism, which is you know, a government control of most means of production, because he'd seen that government control can become a very bad thing. And of course, a lot of what governments do in, you know, our non-socialist countries is protect the aggrandizement of the rich and justify the impoverishment of the poor. Certainly that's happened in our own country over the past 40 years. We've gone from a relatively just economy to one that's produced a lot more financial desperation, indebtedness, and a lot more obscene wealth as we dismantled the tax system and the social safety nets.
0: Rebecca Sonnet, how would that Orwell sense of a socialist society play in the United States if people heard it, even from him or from you?
1: Well, I think they're hearing it a lot. The Democratic Socialists of America are talking a lot. Young people are beautifully unenamored of capitalism and believe that there are alternatives. And if you ask someone, they'd say, oh, we're a capitalist society, but parents don't bill their children for the pleasure of being raised by them. You know, huge numbers of us volunteer for causes, work in soup kitchens, give things away, make donations just make dinner for our friends or help a stranger. What actually keeps our society going is all this anti-capitalism that, you know, helps the homeless, connects us to each other, is how families and friendships, church groups, uh, social networks work. And so there's actually a huge amount of anti-capitalism in the warm relations we have with each other and how that leads to the flow of goods and services that are not for profit. One of the things that really cheered me up at the beginning of the war on Iraq in 2003 was someone told me there's 7,000 groups in the United States devoted to protecting rivers. And those are people hmm. who see rivers as something other than commodities to dump your affluent into or somehow profit off or privatize. I think we might see Orwell as very much one of us um, doing all those things as a father, as a gardener, as a neighbor, as somebody who was very enthused about grazing his goats upon the common, somebody who often stepped up in defense of the vulnerable, of the poor themselves. So I think he would seem quite familiar. And I think that quite a lot of us share those values.
0: Yeah, I share them more after reading Orwell. But I'm wondering, is would the Orwell touch make these ideas and ideals more palatable than, say, Bernie Sanders got to make them? <laughs>
1: Well, I think actually a lot of people have. I am Elizabeth Warren talking about taxing the rich, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, Deb Holland talking about indigenous land rights, et cetera, that we are shifting away from everything as a commodity to talking about things like the upper atmosphere that are another kind of commons, talking about gift exchange, mutual aid, which was a huge thing in the pandemic. I think that Orwell would join a conversation that we're already having and that lots of us are actually powerful voices in already. I see it all around me.
0: Yeah. Any particular Orwell essay to send us all to? Oh,
1: my gosh. There's so many good ones. I actually think his essay in Praise of the Common Toad, which is easily found online, is evidence of what a great nature writer he was but of course nature writing is such a misnomer because usually people writing about nature are also talking about values beliefs sometimes spirituality politics um why i write is still a beautiful essay politics in the english language is still great too good i love a good word for the vicar of bray and then just the sheer pleasure of these minor essays of his about the pleasure of junk shops, of English weather, English cookery.
0: An English cup of tea.
1: Yeah, no, he has very strict ideas about what constitutes a good cup of tea and a wonderful essay about what would make an ideal pub. He invents a fictitious pub called the Moon Underwater, so it can have exactly everything he thinks is best. Apparently has so inspired people that there are a few pubs named the Moon Underwater now trying to live up to his ideals.
0: And there ought to be. I'm just looking for some thoughts on the common toad from 1946.
1: It's a wonderful essay that, like any great essay does, does a lot of different things. It celebrates how beautiful a toad can be, celebrating its golden eye. He writes, at this period, after his long fast, the toad has a very spiritual look, like a strict Anglo-Catholic towards the end of Lent. His movements are languid but purposeful. His body is shrunken, and by contrast, his eyes look abnormally large. This allows one to notice what one might not at another time, that a toad has about the most beautiful eye of any living creature. But the funny thing is he describes the toad in the male singular as he over and over. And, you know, he's emaciated, amorous, And it begins to sound like the widowed Orwell, who's also emaciated and rather amorous at this period. And then he also mentions atom bombs and becomes defiant that, like, people would try to stop him from these pleasures of observing toads in the natural world, but he defies them and is, you know, sort of insistent that he will go on doing this whether or not they like it. They can't stop him. So it covers a lot of ground, and it's just. I keep wanting to call things Orwellian in the sense of so characteristic of the man. And, of course, the word has come to mean something very different, namely something that's sinisterly, manipulatively dishonest and destructive. But um, it is deeply Orwell, if not Orwellian, this sort of celebration of the toad that is also the celebration of independence, a warning about atom bombs. Here we go. Here's a lovely sentence maybe to go out on. How many a time have I stood watching the toads mating or a pair of hares having a boxing match in the young corn and thought of all the important persons who would stop me enjoying this if they could. But luckily, they can't. (laughs) Is that it? That's it.
0: We've covered so much ground, Rebecca, but can you sum up why this man, not only he's he's the all-time hero of journalists and inspiration of every reporter I know, but for all of us, just for the readers, what is it? We cherish more and more about this man, his range, his, his style, his learning. He, he knew English literature in a most extraordinary way. But what is it that's so essential to the rest of my life in this man?
1: Well, what was striking for me, there's lots of reasons to celebrate Orwell as a journalist, as a polemicist, as an essayist as the author of these dystopian novels and allegories that are 1984 and Animal Farm. But what was striking for me was how much time he devoted to pleasure, to joy, to pursuing, you know, these things that were not officially the work itself. And it felt like in that, you know, there's often people around to tell you what you're doing is indulgent, unnecessary, luxurious Bourgeois, like the lady who wrote in to tell him that flowers are bourgeois. And it felt like if Orwell made time for pleasure, for pastimes, for wandering aimlessly, for doing things that didn't have obvious productivity goals attached to them, it really staked out room for any of us. And it actually, for me, was about What should a deeply committed life look like? We're often told you should just be endlessly devoted to the cause in ways I've seen people do and burn out, become bitter, impossible to work with. And Orwell really paces himself. There's a sense that these things he takes so much pleasure in sustain him and make him the person who can also stand up against fascism, authoritarianism, who can also think so deeply about the state of the world and its alternatives. So I think it's really about the relationship between pleasure and politics, between the natural world and the human one, about what a life might look like that's deeply engaged with the worst things in the world, but that isn't necessarily a miserable life, even so.
0: Rebecca Solnit, I cannot thank you enough for giving us almost a new Orwell.
1: My pleasure. Thank you so much.
0: Rebecca Solnit's new book is called Orwell's Roses. Please think of supporting the hardest working team in radio. You can leave a tip at radioopensource.org or by becoming a monthly subscriber on Patreon, where you'll find a growing audio library of conversations on all sorts of subjects. Find it at patreon.com slash radioopensource. Our show this week was produced by Adam Coleman and George Hicks with engineering help from the WBUR production team. Mary McGrath is our truth teller. I'm Christopher Leiden. Join us next time. Join us every time for Open Source. Open Source is a proud member of Hub and Spoke, a collective of independent podcasts making some of the smartest audio you can find. This week, check out Iconography, It's a show about the icons, real and imagined, that define our sense of place. Listen to the episode, Welcome to Amity Island, a deep dive into the 1975 Spielberg classic Jaws and the movie's connections to Martha's Vineyard. Listen at iconographypodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts and sign up with all the Hub and Spoke shows at hubspokeaudio.org. Hub and Spoke. Audio Collective.